Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April the 3rd, 2017, and this is episode 1975 of the Survival Podcast. April. 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 What does that mean? That means that with the first quarter, the first quarter of the year is gone. 2017's first quarter is gone. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Are you working on your liberty and independence and freedom? Remember, if you're not advancing your own individual leadership, your own individual freedom, your own individual liberty, your own individual self-reliance, if you're not advancing it consciously, then you're losing it slowly over time. There is no sliding scale in life. It either is moving forward or it's moving backward in your life. Just a friendly reminder from here at the Survival Podcast. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, as a Monday's listener feedback, I got a lot on the blockchain uh, today. Not really Bitcoin, but blockchain technology. I also have some announcements. Uh, there's been a change in ownership with Permaethos. Some of you won't care. Some of you will be like, oh, wow. And some of you will be like, eh. I, that's okay, fine. Uh, but I will talk about it just a little bit today. The first official Granddaddy's Gun Club uh, is going. Uh, gun Club shoot has been announced. And if you're in the North Central Texas area or want to travel here, I'll tell you how you can learn more about that. I have a new idea for TSP gear and other merchandise related to the TSP brand. Uh, the gear shop is probably never coming back in its old form. And I, I got an idea. I want to get some feedback from the audience and see if anybody would be interested in doing it this way. Uh, there's a new Arizona law out that now recognizes blockchain signatures as legal. As legal signatures. Uh, Japan will be using blockchain for international transfers in 2018. And there's a new company out with the, the, the technology to allow medical records to go on the blockchain. So I'll be talking about all of that today. Um, we're going to talk about gardening on land that has been previously true green chem lawn. Did I use lawn as a verb there? Yes. Got some real-world feedback on buying real estate the TSP way, and apparently it works. And we'll talk about dealing with livestock as a traveling couple in a creative way. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. 
And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Webology, formerly Blake Development. They're your source for website creation and outsourced software solutions. Blake's team designed our business directory, the Nine Mile Farm website, and many projects for the TSP community uh, members like One Upper Farms and Appalachian Tra Tactical Academy. Call Blake directly at 205-636-8612 or check out Webology's listing in the TSP business directory. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1975. I have from Candy Graham for Mongo, um, release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I have from Alex Shrug, American Amnesia, how the Democrats forgot they murdered two million people. I have a Stockholm embassy attack from Southpaw Ben. And I have the first successful hobby computer and the birth of Microsoft from Alex Shrugged. Um, from the bullet points, we have notable births this year. Heather O'Rourke died in 1988 at age 12. She was a little girl in Poltergeist who delivered the famous line, they're here. She died from a misdiagnosis of a small bowel obstruction that led to heart failure while in surgery. Make the best use of your dash, people. That's why I read all of that. In movies, Kate Winslet, Winslet Angelina Jolie, Charlize Theron, and Drew Barrymore. In TV, Elula Longoria. In music, Michael Bublé and 50 Cent. Yeah, that's a little bit of an odd couple, huh? In sports, Ray Lewis, Axel A-Rod Rodriguez, and Tiger Woods. This year in film, Jaws, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and Death and Death to Them with all with Death Race 2000, The Stepford Wives, and Rollerball. This year uh, in TV, we have the debut of Saturday Night Live first guest host George Carlin. By the way, all those old SNLs are on Netflix. If you're interested in watching the old ones, it's a pretty good look, in my opinion, at America in the 1970s. ABC's Good Morning America comes out this year. In situation comedy, we have Barney Miller, The Jeffersons, and Welcome Back, Cotta. Oh, man, I used to watch all three of those. In game shows, Wheel of Fortune comes out with Chuck Woolery. Pat Sajak will replace him six years later and still around today. In crime shows, SWAT and Beretta came out this year. In music, I'm Not in Love by 10CC, Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Calmel, Space Oddity by David Bowie, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Um, here in video games, Pong is now wireless. Tatio releases the first gunfighter game, Western Gun. It's also the first game to use a microprocessor. It's the Intel 8080 running a screaming 1.9 megahertz. The first interactive fishing, fi fiction game is created. Colossal Cave Adventures, text-based. Think of The Princess Bride and the video game the grandson was playing. Never seen Princess Bride. Everybody tells me I need to. The one I remember was Oregon Trail, the text-based adventure game. In other news, the pet rock is born. It doesn't need to be fed. It won't die. It's the perfect pet. One million are sold during Christmas season at $4 a piece, or about $17 in 2015. I bought one, Alex shrugged. President Gerald Ford survives two assassination attempts, and New York City gets a federal bailout. It's a swing loan of $2.3 billion repaid each year for the next four years. They had been cooking the books, and they were too big to fail. Sound familiar, guys? Okay. 
I'm actually going to really read American Amnesia, how the Democrats forgot they murdered more than 2 million people, because it's a forgotten part of the end of the Vietnam War by most people, because they did forget on purpose. Um, but I want to read a little bit on the Holy Grail, because I've, I've used a lot of sound bites on that. This is Monty, and this is from uh, Andy Candygram from Mongo. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a parody of the King Arthur mythology that's been continuously quoted since its release, particularly by information technology professionals born in the late 70s, 50s and 60s. I would also say all the way through the 80s. Anybody that's an 80s kid or earlier has probably uh, spent time, boys anyway, sitting on the couch with their friends watching Monty Python, specifically Holy Grail. But some notable quotes include, It's just a flesh wound. I'm not dead yet. What's your favorite color? And one, two, five, three, sir, three. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think one that's uh, maybe not here that I always liked is when he's, the guy says, I'm not dead yet, and the guy that's picking up to come out, you know, bring out your dead guy says to him, you'll be stone cold in a minute or two. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. Anyway, with the humor out of the way, let's look at the Vietnam War and what happened in the aftermath. The Vietnam War is over. The Paris Peace Accords are signed, but as the USA supplies South Vietnamese troops with arms, as per the agreement, the Soviet Union supplies the North at a ratio of 4 to 1. The Democrat Congress tries to reduce the promised aid. Then President Nixon resigns three months before the midterm elections. President Gerald Ford's subsequent pardon of Nixon renders the Republicans politically dead. The Democrats come in with a veto-proof majority. The Pentagon Papers has embarrassed the Democrats, so in turn Nixon's victory in Vietnam had to tarnish. With malice and forethought, the Democrat Congress forced Cambodia and South Vietnam into defeat by cutting off the funding promised at the peace accords. President Ford begged the Democrats to keep the U.S. promise. Now Saigon has fallen. Over the next few years, two million Vietnamese will take to their boats to escape. More than half will die before they reach refuge. At least 1.7 million Cambodians will be marched into the killing fields to be hacked to death by the Maoist Khmer Rouge. It didn't have to happen. All we had to do was keep our promise. Now no one will trust us. My take by Alex Rugged. The Democrats are certainly forgetful people. They have forgotten that they rounded up the Japanese and placed them in concentration camps. They forgot that they dropped two atomic bombs on Japanese cities. Forgotten how they turned hoses on black demonstrators and blocked the Civil Rights Acts and killed American soldiers in Vietnam by trying to run the war by remote control. What's one more case of amnesia? It was just a few million deaths. This was one of the turning points in my life. I knew it was happening, but I could do nothing about it. I wanted to be a good Democrat. I really did, but I was too ashamed. I cannot stand with a political party that would murder millions to cover their own worthless backsides. I'd rather die than call myself a Democrat ever again. F them. F every last one of them. They did it. They do it again. I cry every time I think of it. After all these years, it still hurts that much. I'm young enough that I don't remember this, but I do know this lesson in history. and It would amazes me. When I do have conversations about the Vietnam War, especially with younger people, let's say the millennial generation, and I tell them that millions of people died because of us after we left, they don't even believe that it happened. They say that's not true. You know, it's like no, there wasn't a million. This is like this is equivalent. When you say this didn't happen, this is equivalent to the people that say the Holocaust didn't happen. It's less people. It's still millions of freaking people. And Alex is right. This would have not happened had we kept our promise. We, we made a promise. We'll provide you with what you need. We'll provide. And I'll tell you another part of the peace accords that weren't, you know, just forgotten. 
We also said that if, if the other side doesn't honor the peace accords, we won't send troops back in, but we'll send the bombers back. And I'll tell you what brought North Vietnam to the peace table. We started bombing the shit out of the North. Really bombing the shit out of the North. Now, I'm not saying we should have done that. I'm saying we did, and it worked. If you want a real, um, a real amazing story of what it was like to be in North Vietnam as a prisoner of war while all this was going on, I have a book recommendation for you. I've honestly forgotten about this book. I read this when I was serving in the Army down in Panama. Somebody gave me a little paperback copy of this book, and it was called Beyond Survival. And it's written by a Captain Gerald Coffee, United States Navy. Coffee like coffee to drink. I have a link in the show notes where you can find it on Amazon. They have it in Kindle and, and other formats now. It's an amazing book about what it was like to actually be in Hanoi. He was at the Hanoi Hilton, same place uh, John McCain was. And you'll, you'll, you'll notice no mention of Senator McCain in, in that book. And I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions as to why. Um, but uh, you... Will, as you read this book, it's, it's an incredible read. Uh, he's shot down, he's flying a reconnaissance plane, so he has no real weaponry. He's captured, transported uh, to Hanoi, uh, he's tortured, uh, he's beaten, he's put in stocks, but he talks about how the men hold together during it. Uh, he talks about Jane Fonda visiting uh, and actually being uh, in some sort of a TV interview where she was there and not being able to say what he really wanted to say because they're just going to take him and throw him back in and beat him. He talks about being able to take a shower for, for when he was going to be seen on camera and finding one sliver of, uh, of soap. And uh, he talks about how somebody had written in that shower, P-H-U-K, fuck, right? right? With, with a P sounding like an F-H-O, of course meaning Ho Chi Minh. And it had stayed there because... The Vietnamese that were keeping him didn't understand it. He talks about how um, when they were finally shown letters, but they weren't allowed to read them, uh, the, everybody was inspired because the, the Vietnamese didn't realize there was one of the stamps showed the first, uh, first landing on the moon, uh, these types of things. And he definitely says, without a doubt, that when they started bombing the shit out of Hanoi, that's what changed the tempo and the tone. Um, so... I, I think Alex's assessment of this is right. Of course, I hate the Democrats and the Republicans, but uh, but I, I, this, if you wanted a good reason to hate the Democratic Party, this would be at the top of the list. And again, I really recommend this book. It's an old book. It's the best book by a former POW I've ever read. Again, it's called Beyond Survival by Gerald Coffey. He was a captain in the United States Navy, now retired, and I have a link in the show notes. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. 
With that, let's get into the uh, main topic of the show. I'm going to be brief on the first one because there's a whole lot of people in this audience that just won't care. But many years ago, I came up with an idea for a community-based um, physical community that we came up with the term permaethos that would be based on libertarian ideals and permaculture ideals. And for one reason, for, for many reasons, we were never able to go forward with it the way that I wanted to. Um, which was basically to buy a big piece of land and have people be able to uh, have 99-year uh, leases uh, and make it very affordable for people to have like an off-grid place that could be a bug-out location, could be permanent. And, and I may take a run at that original concept someday, but this evolved into permaethos as it is today, which was which went and did the installation on Eliza Spring Farm, planted thousands of trees. We had woofers up there. We did some amazing things. We did the first uh, online PDC that, that we had ever done. And uh, we had founders, and we had all kinds of great stuff, and we still do. And the, the reality is, um, myself, Nick Ferguson, uh, Charlie, and Kevin, who own uh, the Elijah Spring Farm, have not had the ability to put our time into that business because of our other commitments. And Josiah Wallingford has been basically at the helm running the whole PETV, which is the weekly webinars, uh, the training sessions, the new podcast, Permaculture Smackdown, all of the things have been being done by Joe. And when we look at the revenue as it is today, splitting it up five ways, it doesn't make sense. We came to an agreement with Joe, and he, he effectively bought out our shares in the company. So Josiah is now the sole owner of Permaethos as it is today. That doesn't mean I want nothing to do with it. That doesn't mean I'm going to completely go away. I will stay on board as, a, as an ad hoc consultant to Joe, And as he comes out with new things, I will stay on board as an affiliate. And I will continue to promote the work that he's doing there. Um, it just didn't make sense to continue to run that company owned by five different individuals with Joe doing all the work. So we came to a, a, a valuation on the company. Uh, we, we did some things to, to work things out with Joe. And effectively, Joe bought us out. So I am no longer an owner of Permaethos. I would say I'm still a member. And this frees me up to do things on my own without a conflict of interest. It lets Joe cut loose to do whatever he wants to do with the company without having to go through me and Kevin as company managers anymore. It's up to him how he manages things. If you're a founder, you'll keep all your benefits. Uh, if you took a PDC and you haven't submitted design yet, you submit a design, it'll still be certified. Uh, I won't be the one to certify it, though. Joe will. He's more than qualified to do that as the, uh, as the instructor on the thing in the first place. So... That's it. If you have any questions about Permaethos, um, they really should go to Josiah. I put out a press release today on the website, on the Survival Podcast website. He'll run a copy on Permaethos. It's his company now. So if there's any question about the company itself, he is the owner. So unless he appoints somebody as a manager or something like that, the questions go to him about the company. If you have any concerns or something like that and you want to personally email me, you can. But again, if you ask me about the company, what the company's going to do tomorrow morning, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't get to say that. That's what buyout means. I, I have my money from selling my share of the company, and Joe has control. If you have any concerns personally that have anything to do with me personally, um, you know, I'm not going to answer every single email I get anyway. I just can't. But I'll, you know, I'll take a look at it, TSPC in the subject line, but that's it for that. Okay, some really cool thing going on, though. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I start, or a year ago, I guess, I, I came up with a concept of something called the Granddaddy's Gun Club. 
and I set up a website. It's like a, a miniature version of Facebook. You have groups, you can have friends, you can talk to each other. And I put a lot of work into the site and said, hey, the concept here is simple. Um, we need to preserve the Second Amendment. We really do. We need to preserve gun rights in America, and we need to continue the, the culture of responsible gun ownership, and we need to do it in a way that's outside of bullshit. And we need to do it in a way that's so deep and meaningful that when people experience it, they'll never forget it. We need to drive home what this is really all about. So the concept was simple. People create groups, and they form their own relationships And you can even have groups that are not public if you want to take something private. I've, I've, I've provided all of this at no cost whatsoever. I've taken no advertising on the site. Everything's there. People think it's a great idea. People sign up. But I think people are kind of stuck like, okay, how do we actually organize a shoot? So myself um, and, and uh, David Siegler have decided we're going to kind of take the lead along with Brad Garbers, who's kind of running point on the reservations and all for this. Um, but we're doing the first official, uh, as far as we know, no one else has done one yet, meet, camp, and shoot scheduled for May, May 5 through 7 in Corsicana, Texas. It's a really cool camp campground where we can actually shoot. And we're going to follow the format that I originally envisioned, though I always said that people can meet in any capacity they want to as long as they do it safely. We're going to have range officers. Uh, we're going to have sergeant-at-arms. And when you show up, Any guns that you're going to have out for talking about and things like that are going to be banded with a tie wrap uh, and made safe because, you know, it's going to be camping and people hanging out and drinking and stuff like that. And uh, the next day we'll go to the range. We'll shoot. There'll be all kinds of guns that people bring, uh, and we'll have a good range shoot. And um, after that's over, we're going to ban the guns again, just like they do at a gun show. And if you're not sure what that means, it basically means we're going to put a tie wrap on the trigger so there can be no accidents. And... Uh, If you're carrying, like your concealed carry gun or whatever, that's fine. Then keep it carried and holstered and no jacking around. And I really prefer when people drink, that you, your weapons are made safe, period, okay? There's a time for being armed and there's a time for not. And when alcohol is consumed, because I'm sure there'll be some alcohol. Um, and during this, we'll have campfire time. And people will tell the story of guns that they have. I don't care if it's a new gun, an old gun, whatever it is. But specifically guns that have either been yours since childhood or you were given to you by a father or a grandfather. And if the time is right, because kids are welcome to come to this too, or young people, because sometimes a young my son's 27, uh, if you have a gun that you're ready to hand down to that next generation, we're going to do it there. We're going to do it there. So if I had a gun I want to give my son and I brought my son, I would tell the story of that gun, and he might not even know that it's, it's going to happen that night. And I, then I'd say something like, you know, it's time for this to go to its next generation. And I'd hand that gun down. And, and we came up with this, and we thought about it this way. If you hand it down to a, a child, a gun that was their grandfather's, and they eventually handed that gun down again to a grandchild, at that point you'd have six generations in that gun right there. Think about that. And it's, it's this kind of real heritage that we want to you know, instill through Granddaddy's Gun Club. So, again, this is going to be in Corsa, Canada. It's going to be at a campground. Uh, there's full details posted at granddaddysgun.com. And I have a link in the show notes directly to more information about it. And it's going to be, I think, $25 bucks or something like that to cover food and, and, and the campgrounds. It's not going to be a lot of money. I don't remember exactly what it's going to be. Uh, but you can e email Brad 
uh, is instructed in the posting to get all the information you need about this. And we'll have some food and stuff like that. It's going to be cool. Uh, it's not going to be like a TSP workshop. It's going to be dedicated 100% to this. And the camping is really the only option if you really want to enjoy yourself at the thing, uh, as far as I know anyway. Again, this is, of course, can. It's about an hour from me. And uh, if you're in the North Texas group, uh, there's a post in the group about it. Uh, again, there's a link and a post on the blog and in today's show notes. And I hope to see a bunch of you guys there. It's filling up already pretty quick. We're going to cabinet at 50 people to keep it manageable. We've not done one before that. You know, firearms, we haven't done that before. So I know there's people going, well, when are you going to do one in California? No, 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 no. You do one in California. We'll do this one. We'll take pictures. We'll talk about how we managed it, what we learned, and share that information on the site so that people that want it. You do yours. This is the whole point. You don't wait for me. I'm not in charge. Granddaddy's Gun Club is a website. It's a hub for you to find people and set these things up. Talk to people at your local gun club or talk to people at your local shooting range. Set one of these things up. We want to do this. We want to make this a thing that happens all over America with no central authority, just some basic guidance, and we'll share the uh, the legal immunity forms and stuff like that. But you're better off you know, sourcing that stuff yourself. What you do is what you do. The concept is simple, though. We tell the stories, and when guns are ready to be handed down, we do it in front of other people. And let me say, granddaddy sounds awful masculine, and this first one will probably be filled up with a lot of male. There is no, there is no uh, discrimination on, on any gender, or race, or anything like that. We don't allow that. So it could be grandma's gun, or it could be granddad's gun going to a granddaughter, or it could be dad's gun going to a daughter. Don't get too wrapped up in the term. The point is, we're going to keep these guns in the family instead of pawning them. If, if they've been around a while, if they're old guns, if they have some history, we're going to keep them in the family. Again, granddaddy'sgun.com, you should sign up for that. Whether you're going to come to this thing or not, if you've, if you've not heard of it before, uh, I do manually approve new members because we have Romanians and shit like that. Even though I block Romania from the site, period, they get on the site to spam it because it's built on Buddy Press. So it might be a day before you get your account approved. It might be an hour. If you put in for one and you don't get an approval in a day, email me and remind me about it. I'd just say that would be a good thing. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC. Granddaddy's gun in the subject line, and I'll know that's what it's about. Uh, in fact, the good thing you could do is when you join, just send me an email like that and tell me you just joined and what your username is, and then I'll be sure that you're not a fake account because we've had some problems there with that. All right, so another thing I want to talk about, I have a lot of announcements today, a lot going on. Um, but, man, guys, join Granddaddy's gun no matter what. I mean, this is an idea whose time has come. Here's an idea. This is in the idea phase right now, but it'll be really easy to do. The TSP gear shop was run by Kelly John Doe. Kelly came up on some health problems. I've had a couple people inquire into taking it over. You take over the gear shop, you take over having inventory, and it's it's not as simple as people think. When people realize the financial investment that's required, um, along with the logistics, and you're only going to make so much money selling hats and, and shirts and, and patches and stuff like that. So the obvious way is to use on-demand services like Cafe Press or Teespring or whatever. Any place where you can set up where you can have you know people go and buy a thing and it's produced and sent to them, and all you're doing is kind of one-off handing that. I've thought about doing it, but I realize that my creativity is limited and the time that I have is limited. So what I'm thinking about doing is, is an open source, we'll call it open source light, with the TSP brand, and I mean all the IPR, the Sentinel, 
um, the crossed rifles, everything that we have, anything you can find using quotes by me, whatever you want to do, the Val logo, etc. You can produce anything you want and sell it. The way that we would handle the limited license, I guess we would call it, and I'd have to write up a little contract on this to make this work, but all it would basically be is it, in order to be able to sell TSP branded merchandise, I would have Blake create a category in the TSP business directory, and it would simply be called TSP Gear and Stuff or something like that. And you have to list your, your, you know, your site or your pages or whatever in there as a listing, And you have to be at least a bronze level member, which I think is like a hundred bucks a year or something like that. And I'd say if you don't think you can make a hundred bucks, don't do it. And it's not worth your time. But you can, if you can do a gold, you get a discount and you're good for three years. But bronze, silver, or gold, not the five dollar listing. In fact, I bet there's a way we can set it so you can't join that board without at least a bronze, silver, or gold. And as long you don't have to ask me, all you do is you just start selling your merchandise. And I'll redirect all the tspgear.com traffic to that category section where people can see all the people that want to do it. Here's why I think it's a good idea. Because you guys will come up with stuff I'd never come up with. And you can repurpose. You don't have to use the, the images as they are. You can come up with any image associated with you know TSP, the Survival Podcast, or other things like Regenerative Agriculture's Facebook group. And, and it's, so you can... The whole portfolio of stuff that I've done other than Permaethos, because I don't own it anymore, right? But Granddaddy's Gun Club. And I think there's a lot of you guys out there that are great graphic artists. You can put together a few things. You can set it up on these third-party websites and just start selling it. You know, put together a little bitty blog site or something like that and link to all your products and just go nuts with it. And I think we'll come up with some really cool stuff because, to me, I never wanted the gear shop to be a major revenue center for me. All I wanted the gear shop to do was provide the audience with a way to get the stuff they want. I keep getting requests from people like, I want to make some pendants and put them in my Etsy store. And I'm just like, go ahead. You know, or I want to do some decals. Or I want to. So what this would do is let you monetize it, and your only obligation on that monetization is to advertise it on the directory. You know, like Again, and that's about 100 bucks a year, I think. Uh, it might even be a little bit less. Uh, no, a bronze listing is 60 bucks. A bronze listing is 60 bucks in the directory. So $60 bucks a year or $170 for three years or $115 for two years. Um, and that would be it. And, and I'm not saying I'm going to do this, but if there's some interest, if you're like, I'd make up some search and put them out on you know, whatever site or whatever, uh, or I'd, I have, you know, if you want to do, if you're a knife maker, you want to use our logo on a knife, anything like that. What it will say in the agreement is you cannot infer that the particular product is personally endorsed. It is simply a branding. It is simply the ability to obtain the brand on the item, and the item is what it is. If it's a beefy tea from Hanes, it is what it be. It's not special because I did. If you put it on your knife, Jack did not come and inspect the knife. That type of thing. And, and I, I, I'm, I mean, literally, open the floodgates and see what. Let's see what the free market can really do if we free the market. Because somebody could come on, do a one-year bronze listing for sixty bucks. And sell $100,000 worth of merchandise. I'm not saying you're going to, but if you did, I still only get the $60 bucks and I don't want anything else. And I think that I've always advised brands to not try to control everything. So I'm going to set that example. If, if there's, there's two or three people that will do it, so I know something will be out there, I'll set up an agreement. It'll be basically, it won't really be like you'll sign it. It'll just be, 
And this is the agreement that all, you know, and if you violate it, we'll just kick you to hell out. And why wouldn't you list it in the directory? Because that's where I'm going to tell people to go to get TSP merchandise. So it seems like a win for everybody. And it seems like people can come and, and, and come up with a lot of cool stuff. So if you're interested, Jack at the Survival Podcast.com is the email. Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. TSPC uh, gear. Put TSPC gear in the subject line and tell me kind of just a, your rough idea of what you would do. If I think there's going to be enough stuff out there, we'll run with this. We'll see where it goes. Let's get into the actual stuff. I mean, this is all actual stuff, but it's kind of show show specific stuff. Let's talk about some things that I've gotten from some feedback uh, this uh, this week. And before I go on, to all of you who have reached out to me over this week and and, and sent your kind thoughts and words over the loss of my father-in-law, Fred, Uh, and all the stuff we had to go through leading up to the funeral this weekend, let me say thank you for that. Your, your, your thoughts and, and prayers and, and, and things like that are really appreciated, and your kind words are really appreciated. Um, we laid Fred to rest on Saturday, and I did speak at his funeral, and I think I, I maybe helped the family a little bit uh, by talking about him and his memory. And uh, yesterday, um, yesterday, the wife and I went to... Uh, to his room that he had at, at the memory care facility and met some of the other members of the family, and we cleaned everything out. Um, that was kind of the, the final chapter there. And on that, I mean, this man lived 90 years. He did a lot with his dash. Let it be an example to all to do a lot with your dash. So um, we have a, a story here that I think is pretty interesting, and it might be a little overblown by the you know people in the world of alternative currencies and what have you. Because I have no doubt that at this point, the state of Arizona is doing this for their own, you know, their own benefit, their own malfeasance. But it's still a big deal. This is off of CoinDesk.com, which you can find a lot of uh, information about blockchain and cryptocurrency news. And it says Arizona governor signs blockchain bill into law. There's a bill in Arizona that recognizes blockchain signatures and smart contracts has officially become state law. The measure was first introduced in early February, seeking to enshrine signatures recorded on the blockchain and smart contracts, self-executing pieces of code under state law. Specifically, the bill aimed to make those types of records considered to be in electronic format and to be an electronic record. That effort is complete. Public records show Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed the bill on 29th of March, just two days after it was sent to the, by, sent by the state Senate. Senators cleared the bill on the 23rd in a near-unanimous vote after Arizona's House of Representatives advanced the bill in late February. As previously reported by CoinDesk, the new law forces any record or contract tied to the tech. Uh, the tech states... The tech states A signature that is secured through blockchain, blockchain technology is considered to be in electronic form and to be an electronic signature. A record or contract that is secured through the blockchain chain technology is to considered to be an electronic form and to be an electronic record. The law mirrors, in some respects, a measure passed in Vermont last year that would make blockchain data admissible in court. Like the Arizona law, the Vermont bill focused specifically on the data that would be a fact or record tied to the blockchain. Okay, so here we go. What does this really mean? Well, I think that Arizona's doing it so if they catch somebody that they think was dealing dope with somebody else, they can use the blockchain record of the contract to prosecute them. However... It doesn't work that way. You can't do it just for that. Once you say you recognize the blockchain, 
as a, as a matter-of-fact record, then it's usable to the advantage of the people that have that record. And it starts to open the floodgates of the things that I've been talking about, like an educational program that issues a certificate of completion or a diploma or a degree through blockchain-like technology. Whereas the student advances through, the, the system itself checks the work and says, gold star, here you go, here's your certification. And then it, that has to be legal. Now, if it's from a private institution that's not accredited by the state's bullshit, the person can say, well, we don't recognize that, the same way they could if you did it through some other means. But it's still there, it's still a record, it's still provable. If people end up with virtual nations and start issuing contracts of marriage through them, Well, if you say you recognize the record, then the record speaks clearly that these two people are married. And it doesn't matter if your state or any other state in the United States says that. They say that under their own terms, and you've said it has to be recognized as a matter-of-fact record. Now, there's a lot of shit to happen before that all really means something, but this is another example blockchain technology is going to take over huge amounts of what goes on in this world. I'm not saying it's going to take over the world, but it'll take over huge amounts of what goes on in this world. And if you think that's you know kind of pushing it or over-exaggeration, well, here's my next story for today. Japan has said that it plans to use international fund transfers through the blockchain in 2018. Let me read this to you. This is on uh, Nikkei.com, Asian Review, and it's Tokyo. Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi, UFJ, and six other international banking groups will launch next year a faster and lower cost cross-border wiring service that uses blockchain, the core innovation behind virtual currency. Banks have poured large sums into building high-security systems for fund transfers, but costs for maintaining and updating them have reached the point where Mitsubishi, UFJ, Financial Group Unit, and others have begun turning to the blockchain. Banks can use the technology to develop remittance system without the need for massive servers, keeping costs down. Advanced encryption technology would make data extremely difficult to falsify. The new platform is also seen further facilitating the exchange of data between banks. U.S. startup Ripple will provide blockchain technology, joining BTMU, our Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Standard Chartered Bank of the U.K., Royal Bank of Scotland, Spain's Banco Satander, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, and Australia's Westpac Banking. About 90 banks in all could participate in the new service, according to Ripple. BTMU successfully wired money internationally in New York using the technology in trials held late last year. Now the Japanese lender will further develop the system with other international financial groups. It will initially offer the service to individuals in early 2018, then slowly expand to corporate clients. BTMU is the first Japanese megabank to offer a concrete timetable for a rollout. The process of wiring money will not change much for customers once the blockchain is adapted. Clients can request fund transfers online or at a bank branch, with the money remitted through the settlement network. International wiring of money now goes through the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication with data exchange through the SWIFT network and funds channeled through multiple banks. The new system sends money directly to the destination without the use of intermediary banks. That opens the door to immediate settlements, and receipt of funds is easier to confirm. Accounts can be verified before funds are transmitted, and measures said to prevent transactions by suspect organizations. 
Savings from eliminating the now complex procedures are expected to be passed on to clients. It currently costs between 3,000 and 5,500 yen, around 27 to $50, to transfer money internationally at BTMU. The process can take days, and the recipient bank sometimes charges a handling fee. Now, there's more to it, but you get the point. Faster, cheaper, better, more secure. Blockchain. So when Bitcoin came out and all of the people that are in places of authority and corporations and, and government shit all over it and said this is only for nefarious things, they were all lying and they knew it. They're now adopting it because they can't afford not to. Um, there's been some bullshit about how much energy Bitcoin uses, and it, it's bullshit. It doesn't use anywhere near the energy that the misinformation campaign has, has said uh, at all. It just doesn't, and uh, it won't. If you saw the server farms that are necessary to run even uh, basic banking operations and the energy required, it's unbelievable, and the cost to maintain it is unbelievable, and it's still susceptible to things like hacking. Now, you might have your funds secured by FDIC. That doesn't mean somebody can't hack it and get money. If you want more on that, just check out North Korea bank hacking and, and see what's going on and what successfully has gone on with some of that stuff. Um, it is much more difficult to hack things that are maintained through a blockchain technology. And that technology, as I keep trying to explain, keeps evolving. Uh, I was having a conversation with a law enforcement officer about this that's a member of the family uh, over the weekend. And he was talking about Bitcoin. And I was like, see, Bitcoin really isn't as anonymous as you think it is. And I explained he got it because th th he works in human trafficking. And they do use cryptocurrencies in human trafficking. Uh, they also use cash. And they also use bank wires and all kinds of things in different ways. And I was explaining to him how you can audit any wallet and see what's in it. And you see wherever it came from. It's identifying the holder of the wallet that's the problem. But that, like, that's yesterday. Like, when you look at things like uh, zero coin and stuff like that, and and Dash and what have you, that there's there's greater levels of encryption and anonymity, and and that same type of technology can be used by mainstream. And I'm telling you right now, information services, whether it's financial or otherwise, in the future are going to run on blockchains. There's not a blockchain. The blockchain is a technology. It's The problem is Bitcoin came out and ran on the blockchain. And it's just like when you know Xerox came out with the first copiers and everybody called everything that was out there a Xerox machine. Well, it's not a Xerox machine. It's a copy machine, right? So Bitcoin ran on its blockchain, but blockchain is a tech. And it's going to take over the freaking world in many ways. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. Because here's our next story. One of the biggest headaches in the world is medical records and keeping them encrypted but accessible. Uh, so that you know a doctor that's, that sees a patient laying, especially laying on the bed unconscious, knows this person's medical history, yet that, that information is, is information that is highly sensitive, and you generally don't want your medical information in the hands of other people. Because it also includes things like payments and you know, maybe some way that you might be vulnerable and, and what have you, and private information that could be used to um, to commit fraud in your name. is another type of thing, whether it's against a company or whether it's against your own family. 
Uh, there would be some very specific ways that, that could be done that I won't really get into right now. But this comes from uh, Jeff in Car South Carolina. He says, Medical records are already being encrypted on blockchain technology. More info. I just listened to episode 1971. Great show. It reminded me of a news story I heard a couple of weeks ago at a local business in Charleston, South Carolina. The company has developed blockchain medical records encryption. They seem to be just getting started, but as you said, this is the Internet of the future. These folks could be on the cutting edge. Uh, it's, their website is pokitdoc.com. Uh, terrible name, but my brain explodes when you imagine how disruptive this could be and actually improve healthcare. As the old mantra goes, paper remembers, people forget. This technology could cut millions, if not more, in doctors and pharmacists prescribing conflicting medications. Lawyers' buttholes everywhere just tighten thinking about their losses. Inquiries from years ago that could turn into further complications as we age could be tracked and targeted. Medication could become more preventative by all medical by our medical history going with us wherever we go. Like you, I've removed a lot and basically start over with each new doctor I see. This could help medicine take the next step in other cutting-edge medicines like medicines being developed uh, and uh, human biome project. This would be the tip of the iceberg. Anyway, just thought you would find it interesting as blockchain is rapidly being integrated. Pretty exciting times, man. Jeff in Columbia, South Carolina. Jeff, you're dead on. I have a link to this company's website, and this is another example. And, and I want you to think about what happens when you go to a new doctor. They give you this form that's like the last 400 times you fill out this form, and it's shit like, have you ever had surgery in your life? Well, I had tonsillectomy when I was five. What medications were you given for your surgery? I don't flippin' know. I'll flip and know. And why am I doing this? Why can't you just get the records from the last doctor? Oh, we need you to do. Wouldn't it be nice if you just like walked in with a little, like your whole medical history on like a Donald Drive? And they can just plug it in, boom, it's in their system, and it's encrypted. And the reason they can get it is because you just gave them the way to get it. I mean, and that's just the beginning of how this will all work. Now, I want you to start thinking. Because I don't think people get it when I say that the block that blockchain technology is the new internet. What else could you use this for? You know, we spent a lot of time early on with the concept of virtual nations and private dealings and stuff like that, thinking of how we could use it. But we, you know, we we kind of really didn't look deep until recently. I mean, us as a community here at how the 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 existing apparatuses could use it. Anywhere you have large amounts of information that needed to be tracked and be auditable, yet be secure. And this can be, this is like a gun. It can be used for evil or it can be used for good. By both the private and the public sector, evil or good. The truly private sector, which I consider real entrepreneurs. And then there's the fascist sector, the neo-fascist sector, with the banks. So the banks the insurance companies, all of these people, they're the neo-fascist sector, the public sector, which really is the government sector. And there's a lot of overlap between the neo-fascist sector and the government sector because they're all fascists. I know some of you are cringing right now going, there's no concentration camps. I'm not going to go into it today. I'm talking about neo-fascist economics. All right, And that's, that's the society that we live in. So they're going to adopt this technology, but the, the difference between it and the Internet is the Internet is the Internet. Okay? And what I mean by that is, yeah, there's some people trying to tape together basically a private Internet with 
And maybe we'll get there someday, but the Internet's the Internet. There's one Internet, right? And it's just the connection between everybody. But you can roll out a blockchain that's independent of the other blockchains tomorrow or integrate with existing blockchains tomorrow if you know how to do it. It allows for specific applications that are to only the parties that you choose to allow to engage, whether it's a free-for-all or whether it's a very select small club. You could run any small government on a blockchain better than it's run on anything else because what you could actually do is have true democracy within a true republic because the system could be set with defined limitations of what can be done by vote. You can't do that, so the system will basically not let you do it. Oh, you're violating the, the Second Amendment with that. We, I don't care how many of you want to do it. You have to go through the amendment process. Unless it actually meets the amendment process, the system won't let you. Now, I don't see our government allowing that to happen, but you can literally replace a Congress with a blockchain. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. This is the future. This is techno-voluntarism, techno-anarchism. But there's also the technocrats' application of this tool. They've realized that we now have a superior technology, and, and they can't. They wanted to kill it, but now they can't kill it. So now they want to co-opt it. Unfortunately for them, unfortunately for us, you can't co-opt it. You can emulate it. You can make your own. You can ask people to use it, but you can't take over the stuff that's in private hands or that's completely public. So I consider Bitcoin's blockchain to be completely 100% public. You can't attack it. You can't take it down. You can't get rid of it. You can't go after the owner of it. It doesn't have one. Whereas we can have a, a technology that's built to allow people to share information within their neighborhood that's specific only to them. That's also impossible to take down. Or we can have something that is centrally controlled. It all depends. The opportunities are now limitless with where this can go next. All right, enough on blockchain. Let's talk about some other things today as we head toward the tail end of the show. How about a gardening question? That, that's about as uh, out, of the, out of the blockchain as we can get quickly. Uh, it says, uh, this is from Jared, and Jared says, two questions. How long should you let land rest if it's been chemically treated with herbicides and chemical fertilizers before planting vegetables in it? Two, do you have any specific tips about growing vegetables in a large elevated planter box, specifically on keeping sufficient water in the soil? I live in average middle American subdivision with true green trucks spraying everywhere, including my yard. I'm a lazy yuppie in recovery. Thanks for helping me see the light. My lawn was treated last year and was recently sprayed. Even though I canceled the service once I decided to begin gardening last year, they decided to just show up and start spraying. I want to plant a vegetable garden, but I don't want all those chemicals getting into my food. I'm going to feed my family. Should I wait a year or a few months and let the chemicals wash away before doing this or just go for it now? To start clean, I, I, I'm going to stop there because I'm going to answer this. Just do it. All this, this work. The chemicals are going to get in the food. The biggest problem that you might have is you might find it difficult to actually get certain plants to grow because it's not the fertilizer that I'm worried about. Long term, it's damaging. It doesn't build the soil, whatever. But it doesn't. Fertilizer ain't poison. Okay. Um, it's the it's the herbicides that concern me because what these people use is herbicides that specifically target broadleaf plants because those aren't grasses. 
So you might find that you have lackluster performance. Tomatoes that are just chronically developing a blight. Uh, peppers that are just sick and won't grow. Things like that. Or you might get great results. The, the, the easy answer is to go with raised beds and bring soil into those beds, which is kind of what you're doing with this other thing that we'll talk about in just a second, except you're doing it like extreme version of it, which if you want to do it, that's fine, and I think it's cool. Um, but that'll at least get you a, a start on a, a base-level soil. Uh, I would recommend maybe getting a copy of you know, as a starter. One of the best things as a starting gardener is to get Square Foot Gardening by Mel Bartholomew. And even if you don't use the square foot method per se, where you cut the bed up into square feet and manage each square foot, the, the Mel's mix you can make with it, you know, stuff you can get at any hardware store or any bulk store or whatever, uh, and, and, and how to manage and build a, just a straight vegetable garden is probably the best starting book that there is. Okay, and you you, you got to stop worrying about the, the the whole point is if you if, as long as you stop doing it, all the things we do with an organic practice are the remediation that's necessary: the sheet mulching, the composting, the rock minerals, the high quality compost teas, and things like that. We just stop the conventional. We switch over to organic and permaculture like methods. I really recommend you check out DirtDoctor.com. Check out Howard Garrett's methodologies and start just freaking doing it. And I, I say that to everybody. Unless somebody was spraying it with mercury or something like that or lead, just start because it'll get better over time. And you're not going to kill yourself with it. And the food you're eating from the grocery store right now is going to be worse for you than whatever you grow on a spot that used to be done with True Green Chemlock. Okay? Stop worrying about it. If you're eating 100% organic right now and you only shop at Whole Foods and shit like that, and you're, you're, you're pure as the driven snow on your diet, well, then maybe you'd wait a year. But if you're, if you're going to eat a bag of freaking Fritos tomorrow and then you're going to tell me you're worried about gardening where they used to spray Kruger and Kemlon, you're full of crap. And you might not be so on purpose, but you are, right? And you know, I'll eat that, but do you, do you go buy conventional vegetables? Is everything you buy organic? No, then don't worry about it. Because you're going to do better than conventionally grown right now by starting this year. Okay, And then he adds on. To start clean, I've decided to build a few large elevated planter boxes. Imagine a table height raised bed. While a bit costly, it will give me a fresh start. This height will also be easier for my pregnant wife to participate. And if any HOA blue hairs decide they don't like my veggies, they can't complain because there's no restrictions on outdoor furniture. I'm planning to build two to three of these, probably six by two, 12 inches deep. As a brand new gardener, I spent the winter reading up a bit, and I, I think my biggest issue will be keeping enough water in the soil of a big planter like this. I'm in East Tennessee and have hot summers, and they can be very dry. Previous examples, you mentioned a, ch a technique of planting logs in our garden beds as they uh, rot and hold water nutrients. Made me think of a layer of mulch on the bottom of these boxes may have a similar effect and help hold water. Do you think that would be a good way to go? Would love to do sweet potatoes and try greens like you recommend, but I fear 12 inches will be too shallow for them. What do you think? Okay, 12 inches is plenty. Six inches, if you keep it wet, is plenty. People go and take old parking lots and build raised beds out of two-by-eights, fill them with dirt on top of a freaking parking lot, and garden there. You keep it mulched. It gets partial shade during the day. The full sun shit is bullshit, unless you live in really northern climates where it doesn't get real hot. Okay, you, you, The ideal for your garden is eastern sun and western shade. 
so that they get a full, you know, good six, eight hours of sun, and then shade comes for the rest of the day. And the hottest part of the day, it's in the shade. You do that, six inches is enough. That's why I said read Mel Bartholomew's book. Because basically, he's building six-inch deep beds. And if you wanted to grow carrots or something that needs some more depth, you, in the square foot method, you build a little box and set it over top of your square foot and plant into it. Right Now, keeping it wet, my recommendation for what you're going to do is go get some dripper line. You can get it at Home Depot or Lowe's. Get the ones with the emitters that are already in the line. So they're built in, so you don't have to put all, because a lot of money starts going in a drip when I need an emitter here, and I need an emitter there, and I need an emitter in the, no. the, 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 the emitters on the pre-built line, it's like red tan looking stuff. It's in the irrigation section at Lowe's. I'm sure Home Depot has it too. They're one foot apart. So stagger them so that you have two of them, and there's one every six inches. Put it on a timer. And figure out how often they need to run for how long to keep the soil gently moist. I would recommend a wicking bed here for you, but I don't. I think you've already started the construction process, and it would change some things. You need something watertight to do a wicking bed, right? So that's something you can consider. You can use things like uh, stock tanks, uh, uh, especially the rubber-made ones are really good for that. That's what I'm doing all my wicking beds and my aquaponics system with. And uh, or you can use uh, you can build wood. You can line it with a pond liner. There's a lot of ways to do wicking beds. That's very good too. But you need thick mulch on the top of wicking beds because it takes less energy for the water on the top to evaporate than it takes for the water from the bottom to come up. All right, and uh, you can play around with wicking beds. But I would say your your simple answer to this, standing on the way you want to do it, if you don't want to build wicking beds, is drip irrigation on a timer. I'll, I'll explain something else too. Most people. With gardens, don't water too little, they water too much. Soil should be moist, it should feel moist, but when you squeeze it and you let go, it should crumble. If it goes into a clump, you know, it's not good. So that, that's how I would take that approach, either wicking beds or drip irrigation, and do your drip irrigation on a timer. Because that timer can go off, you know, you can set it to go off six times a day for, you know, 30 minutes, if that's what it takes. But... Start out with, you know, less is more, good layer of mulch. I'm talking at least two inches thick, right? And that's about right. One to two inches thick of a fine shredded wood mulch. Use a fine shredded wood mulch on your beds. If you go to Lowe's, there's a product sold as organic compost. I can't remember the brand, but if you email me, I'll go look at some bags of it. It's not compost. It's freaking wood mulch. They call it compost, but it is 100% organic product. It is a very fine mulch. It's what I'm using on the top of my wicking beds because it's so fine and light. This means you can plant seeds. You don't have to even worry about the fact there's mulch over. Your seeds come straight up through that mulch beautifully. And a good one to two inch layer will, will serve as the dry layer above your soil to keep your soil wet and run your drip irrigation or your wicking beds. And again, for those of you that have had your lawn sprayed and blah, 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 just stop and then start. Don't worry about it. And again, if you're going to tell me you're eating 100% organic, well, fine, then maybe we sheet mulch it and wait a year. But if you're still going to go to the store tomorrow and buy some tomatoes and peppers until you start producing that come from a conventional system, yours will be better because you're not going to spray while they're growing. All right. And again, for you guys that really want to do bang up on your beginning gardening, please check out Howard Garrett. 
He is the best that I have found. Uh, I listen to his show whenever I get a chance. He's even got a podcast from his radio show that's done here locally. You can download. He does them over the weekend, so you can get them and listen to, I think it's a four-hour show. Uh, commercials and stuff get taken out of the podcast. I know I think he's running the commercials in them now, but you can fast-forward through them. All right, let's take another one. Uh, this next one is about buying real estate and uh, doing it with the information that I've provided previously. Uh, this comes from Spencer. Spencer says, Jack, I want to personally thank you for episode 1778, Finding a BOL Property. I use this podcast for basic real estate purchasing advice, so not a BOL, and I found myself listening to it at least once a week during the process from looking at properties online to closing. We have a green light to close the end of April 2017. I would like to highlight the significance of some of the points you made as they refer to my home buying experience. Number one, find a good realtor, preferably someone who has a vested interest in your happiness. I won't go into the exact relationship we had, but I felt we had a correct realtor when she told me she was treating the home search like she was searching for a home for her own kids. This was confirmed after a number of interactions when I saw this realtor going above and beyond what I consider her job to be. For example, she didn't have to shop for any better interest rate for us by leveraging her relationship with a mortgage company and their advertisement for price matching. We talked at least four agents, and I never felt as comfortable as well-informed as I did with this agent. If you don't feel that way from the get-go, uh, then you probably never will. A good agent is a busy agent. Their initial pitch is probably the best face they will have, and if they don't wow you from the initial impression, they probably never will. You will learn that communication methods, text, email, phone, etc., vary extensively person to person. If your agent is a slow responder, this could be a big problem for you, especially in the cutthroat market. I agree. Uh, you know, my last agent honestly sucked. We ended up stuck with her at a certain point, though. But when you're saying, I need to look at houses, this is my criteria, and I have to have high-speed Internet, and she says, well, I have a house you want to show, and you go, well, what do they have for Internet? I don't know. But wrong answer. Pick the freaking phone up, call the other agent, find out for me, will you? Well, they said they have Internet that's fast over cell phones. Bam, that doesn't work. How many times are we going to have this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Listen to this next part. Uh, read everything. All paperwork must be correct. Yes, it's boring. We made an initial offer that involved a free two-month rent back. The offer was countered. Our next officer purchase agreement uh, involved fewer closing costs paid by the seller and no rent back. However, the rent-back option was on the table, meaning we were willing to consider discussing it later. I kept both offers for my own records, but they only had my signature on it. We later learned the signed purchase agreement from both parties included the pages from the initial offer for the free rent-back. The seller either thought or tried to pass off that they were going to stay there for free. I will probably never know if this was a clear mistake, a verbal intent, or they th or, or they thought we were stupid. And frankly, I don't care. I do care that if you sign a document, you know exactly what it says, so you can refute it if you have to. By the way, the agents agreed to pay for a single month of rent for the sellers. Reiteration, emotion drives mistakes in real estates. I've said that a thousand times, Spencer. I'm glad you heard it. Regarding the event above, How would you think about this? I thought they were trying to take me for a ride and mooch off me for the next two months. But then I considered the possibility their agent may have convinced them that pasting two pages into an official document with ID numbers on the top of it was okay. Who should I blame? Should I insist the family with three kids move their whole family elsewhere because their agent screwed up? If I don't absolutely need the money, then what's the big deal? Do not get emotional about real estate. 
Thanks, Jack. I chose to worry about my ownership on my own crew first. The previously stated deal was arrived at, and I, insist, I insisted that reasonable rent would be considered for one month or the sellers would vacate. P.S. A show about selling a home also might make for a very good show. I'm sure you've got a lot to say on this matter as well. I've actually done that before, and we have somebody in the community working on a very cool ebook that will be out soon that tells you how to sell any show, any home in any market that I've personally uh, been basically like a co-editor on and is, it exemplifies all of my methodologies and things like that for selling a home. Um, real estate is something you're either good at or you're not. But the big thing is not being emotional and understanding the market as a buyer or a seller. And there's times when you're a buyer, you do have to be aggressive because if properties are going quickly, uh, then you can lose an opportunity to buy. However, if you're smart, you're finding the properties that the people marketing it are freaking idiots, and it's been sitting for 90 days already, and you're in the driver's seat. As a seller, you want to be the other way. As a seller, you want to put the house on the market by the end of the week, you want an offer. And I know some of you are like, come on. Guys, I did it. I did it right here on the air multiple times. And once in the middle of a recession where my own audience was going, how are you going to sell a property right now? Boom, gone, done. That one took two weeks. But we did have offers the first week. Full price, done. Arkansas, selling a mobile home. Oh, they're harder to sell. I don't want you as an agent. What? No, you're an idiot. You, you, You're already telling me you can't sell the house. You haven't even seen it yet. Uh, house went on the market. We had like five offers that were somewhere low ball and stuff like that. We had one that was like, I just said, I'm not even countering. Like, it's just so stupid low. I don't, I don't even want to talk to them. And the agent's like, but we have to do something. No, I don't have to do anything. That offer is so ridiculously low. There's no place for me to counter. You can tell them the price is the price. And we ended up selling it. Full price offer. Full price And that's, that's how we've always done it, because we know what to do. We know what to do. And, again, we have a, a product coming on about that. But we'll, we'll talk more about selling houses in the future, I'm sure, here at the Survival Podcast. Because valuable life skill right there, being able to properly buy and sell real estate. Something we should be learning in schools that we're not. Here's someone looking for some help, and he has an interesting idea and wants my opinion on it. I'll try to do all of that at once. He also wants me to maybe direct some people to his Craigslist ad, but... He didn't include his Craigslist ad. So if you're interested in this after you hear it, you can comment today's show notes and he can, you can kind of hook up from there. Uh, or you can email me and I'll uh, forward it on to this gentleman. I'll try not to delete this one like I always do when I'm done with them and keep it in the, the queued up box so that I can find it. It says, uh, and this is from Ryan. Ryan says, we need help feeding our livestock and have come up with an idea that could help us while helping someone else at the same time. The problem We, me and the wife, want to start raising livestock on our 40-acre property. We're both long-haul truck drivers. Our runs keep us on the road three to four days a week. Our solution, we are offering free RV space and a percentage of food raids with someone willing to feed and care for the animals on the days we're at work. Details, we have 40 acres in northeast Washington. The property is forested, has a creek and a pond on it. The property has national forest on two sides and an abandoned cabin that we're trying to buy and a cliff on the other two sides were fairly secluded at the end uh, of a private two-mile road and completely off-grid. In the past three years, we've got our house and garden food storage and chickens and ducks up and running. 
At the house, we have a 13,000-gallon water storage, both above and below ground, so it's a year-round system. We have power generation and storage system that allows us for luxuries like washer, dryer, hot tub, big screen TVs, and so on. The RV space we're offering would be off-grid at first. I plan to upgrade the space in the first year to include a septic system, 1,250-gallon below ground water storage tank, and a concrete pad and patio, and a 1,000-gallon propane tank. My thinking is to get someone here and start small by just caring for the dogs and the birds, chickens and ducks, that I have set up on auto feeders and waters for. This will allow us to get to know each other for the first few weeks before I start laying out money in space, improvement, and the animals. That also makes sure we won't end up with animals uncared for as a person comes out and finds out life off-grid is hard as balls. Uh, and the improvement to the space would go hand-in-hand, hand, and we'd start a fruit orchard with about 100 trees, All this would mean the RV space would also have the aforementioned amenities. We have posted some ads on the Spokane Craigslist, and I've gotten some very positive feedback, but so far no takers. I think it's a great deal for someone, especially since I'm funding all the infrastructure and feed. I would love to hear your thoughts on this plan, and if you like it enough, I hope you mention the whole plan on your podcast. Maybe steer some like-minded people to my Craigslist ad. P.S. I was turned on to your podcast by a coworker, a big fan. Brandon T is also a driver. He plays one. He played one episode, and I was hooked. I downloaded your app and burned through all the available episodes. I can't wait till payday so I can join your member support brigade and download all the past podcasts. What you're doing is awesome. Keep it up. Hope you got my previous thank you email, Jack. Okay. Here's what I'm going to say about this. I think it's a fantastic idea. It will all come down to the execution. Um, And you also think about the fact you're talking about people that live in an RV. Many people that live in an RV like the mobile lifestyle. So one thing that might hold you back from getting someone is that people in RVs generally, if they live, they live full-time in RVs, don't want to be tied down. They're seasonal, or they're going to live here for a year, and then they're going to go there. So all this infrastructure that you're going to build, the people that come first may not partake in it. So... I would at least look at what you can do. I mean, to put a 30-amp um, uh, circuit out for the RV so that they can have electricity like you do um, or something like that. Provide a generator and they provide the fuel some way to put them on power. And however you're dealing with your septic right now, Maybe it's just a, like a separation issue, like you want them far enough away from you and it doesn't really work. But most time when you have a septic system, For the house, you can, if you can, you can tie an RV right into that septic. So, so look at to see if that's a possibility and, and some way to deal with the water. Now, you can maybe wait on the concrete pad, but that might be the least complicated of all the things that you're going to do. So, it may be to get someone to take the bait, you might have to bait the hook a little bit more eloquently. Um, you know, something like that. Uh, you mentioned you have washers and dryers, saying like, because we've thought about doing something here, not quite like you're doing, but maybe putting a couple tiny houses on the property uh, and doing some kind of program for returning veterans or something where they come live here for six months. And, and to make things easier, like there's a bathroom and there's a, a laundry room, and you can use it on these days, right? So you have access to the house to use them for these things, but you live there because you definitely want separation from people. Having someone live in your home that's not part of your family for six months even It's stressful. We did it here, and we liked the guy a lot, right? And it still was stressful. Um, and I've had other times we've, we've kind of taken in friends that were in hard way for fairly long periods of time. It, it stresses you out. And having that separation is great. 
But um, if you can do something to make it easier for them to, you know, wash, dry their clothes and stuff like that. Um, maybe until you get the water solution and the septic solution, you know, there's during the week when you're gone, they can just use your bathroom. They have to clean it and all uh, and in your laundry room, and, and that makes things easier. So there's, you know, things you can work out. Here's my concern, and you're on the right track with kind of this vetting process. I, I've seen a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I take care of animals, and they're just, they forget You know, I have a friend who I'll not name, who had a brother who I won't name, who was uh, taking care of his animals for him when he was traveling, and he, like, called him on the phone, and I hear him going to him, yes, you have to feed them every day, every day. They're living creatures. And water, yes, every day, every single day they have to have water and food. If it runs out in the middle of the day, you need to redo it then. You can't wait. They need it every day. Yes, every, this is how, I'm listening to one side of the conversation. This is how it's going. All right. And this is a person that should have known. So you're going to have to do some vetting. And what you're, to make this work, this is what you have to do. Everything's on a trial basis. If it works out, you can be here long term. If I, if I feel at any point that it's not going to work out, you got to pick your shit up and you got to go. Right, and maybe you can have you know unless they've done something really stupid, you know you have a week. But when I say out, you're out because I got to put somebody else in. And, and what you really have to do is kind of come up with a program to be able to replace people. And the people that come in, even if they're not going to be there full, you know, forever, because um, most people don't want to live in an RV forever. A lot of times it's a lifestyle temporary thing. Um, Then, then you need some kind of agreement. Like they're not going to say, "Hey, you know what, man? It's been great. Appreciate you know. I'm leaving tomorrow." And le now you got animals there and stuff. So you have to have some kind of a agreement on a, a re like just like an employee, you know, two weeks notice type of thing or something like that, so that you can figure out what to do. If you're bringing in like animals that are going to have a specific time frame. Like they're going to finish by this time, then you bring people in to take care of them. Well, you know the the pigs finish up in October, so we need you to stay till October. That type of thing, at least. It, it might be a really good deal for someone that does want a full time living in an RV and just look look for a place to put it. I mean, if I had a great big RV and I wanted to live in it like it was a house, and uh, you can give me rent free and I take care of your animals, and you're going to provide these amenities for me. I'd be all over it. So if, if this sounds like something you'd be interested in doing, uh, you can get in touch with Ryan again by email me, put TSPCRV in the subject line. I'll forward it on to Ryan. Or um, get on the blog and make some comments for today's episode 1975. And Ryan, dude, I would have linked to your Craigslist ad, but you didn't include a link to it. So uh, this is the best I can do for you. But this is one of those things you really got to be sure you got the right person. And it's a very big win-win if the two right people can find each other in these types of situations. It, it starts the smack of fiefdoms with small farms and stuff like that in the words of Joel Salatin. Okay, uh, that kind of wraps up our stuff for today, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support our show, you know I talk about the MSB at the beginning, but here at the end, the other way you can support our show is by when you're going to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com first, and there you can find all of our reviews, and you can also see the Amazon deals of the day. You click that Amazon deals of the day link, you get over to Amazon, and you're not interested in any of them, even if you don't even want to look at them, you just click that link, you go over there, you start searching for whatever you're going to buy. And when you buy stuff through our links on our site, we earn a commission as an Amazon affiliate. 
So you can buy your stuff. You're going to buy on Amazon anyway through our links. But you should definitely check out our current item of the day and all of our past reviews. You can do that at T-Spaz as well. Or just go to the site and just start scrolling and you'll see the stuff. Today's is kind of what we call a... a, a, a Encore item, that's what I call them. We've, we've done this one before, but it's a really great piece of kitchen gear. It's the Con, Con Recon uh, Julianne Peeler. So for making Julianne. That doesn't sound very survival-y, I know. Um, but I believe eating better is a huge survival topic, and learning how to cook is a big part of eating better. And this Con Recon Peeler is made in France. It's the best Julianne Peeler on the market. And it's not real expensive or anything like that. I mean, it's not, well, since it's a French made, you know, special thing, it's 10 bucks, $9.38 to be exact. And you can use any Julianne Peeler to do what I'm going to tell you, but since this is like the best one and it's 10 bucks, if you're going to get one, you don't have one yet, I recommend this one. What I got into using this thing was when I learned about Zoodles. What the hell is a zoodle? It's a zucchini noodle. And there's all kinds of like spiralizer machines and shit like that to make them, but all you need is a julienne peeler, and you just take your zucchini and you start peeling it with a julienne peeler, but you keep going past the peel all the way down to you get to the pithy core. When you get the pithy core, you toss it to the chickens or something like that, and you do it again until you get enough of the zucchini that you want for your noodles this night, the zoodles. You, you sprinkle them, and I have the whole thing written up for you. Sprinkle them with some salt and let them sit in a colander for about, you know, 30 minutes. If they're not really wet by 10 minutes in, add a little more salt. Use as little salt as necessary to get this done. You do it a few times, you kind of you kind of come to where you know how to do it. And they, they sweat out all their moisture, so they get denser, and they can become the texture of a noodle. You throw them on some paper towels and take the extra moisture off them. You throw a little olive oil in a skillet, and you just heat them through. Some pepper, maybe. I like to use chili garlic oil when I make mine. Maybe a little butter. Whatever you want to flavor them with. No more salt. We've done enough of that already. And we serve them as a side dish. They're freaking awesome. Everybody I've eaten them is like, wow. Everybody I serve them to them is like, wow, they're, they're amazing. They taste like noodles. And I've had a lot of people say, well, I tried it. It didn't work. But they didn't do the salt thing. It's the texture. is the whole deal here with these things. And these Julianne peelers are how to do it. So you might want to check that out today. And remember, you can always support us by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com, no matter what you're going to buy. Uh, and we are an affiliate. We get paid for all of our reviews. So I try to be upfront about that. And I'll tell you this, though. Uh, with the very few exceptions of things that people have maybe suggested and they checked out, and I just didn't need it or I had an equivalent, um, maybe one in a hundred is something somebody suggested. 99 out of 100, I own the item if it's on my website. Uh, that's just how I do business, and it's why we're starting to do some encore items because, you know, I'm not going to just go buy stuff to put more stuff on the site. Uh, it's also because I've been really busy these last couple of weeks. So check out the Julianne Peeler and check out tspouse.com. Next up, let's talk about the song of the day. The song of the day is one of the ultimate songs of all time, in my opinion, from one of the ultimate groups of all time, in my opinion, and it was mentioned in the history segment today, it's Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. You can talk a lot about the meaning of this song, but I'm going to tell you what I think. The basic storyline is pretty clear. It's a, it's a guy that kills someone and ends up selling his soul to the devil, and it seems like he ends up dead, and uh, the, 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 the different factions are fighting over him. You know, let me go. Huh? Bismafa, we will not let you go. What's Bismafa mean? It, it, it's basically from the Quran. It's like in the name of Allah, in the name of God. 
Now, Freddie Mercury, who wrote the song, wasn't Islamic. He was actually Zo Zoastrian. Right? Zoaster uh, is the is the faith that his family was from. But they kind of recognize a unifying spiritual being across all faiths type of thing. But it basically, God, we will not let you go. And there's you know, Amadeus Figaro. I mean, this is this is what I really think. There's this basic storyline in there. And all this other symbology it was just cool shit that rhymed and worked for the song. And Queens always kept very quiet about it as to what the actual meanings are. It's marketing. But because people talk about it, because people want to know what it is, if they just said, oh, we just use that because it rhymed or whatever, it wouldn't have the lasting effect. Now, here's some other things about this song. It's in it's in multiple stages, right? It's 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 almost sounds like different songs. There's an intro segment that runs for the first 49 seconds, and then there's a ballad section that runs from 49 seconds to three minutes and two seconds, and then there's the guitar solo that runs from 2:40 to 3:05, and then there's an opera, which is what kind of we were just talking about that runs from 3:05 to 4:07. And then a hard rock segment that runs from 407 to 454. And then there's the outro that comes back down to the original kind of uh, intro level of, of things that runs from 454 to 555. And the whole song's 5 minutes and 55 seconds long. No one wanted Queen to release this song from their record company and musicians that were being asked for it. Nobody wanted this song. Freddie Mercury and Queen wanted this song. They believed in it. They thought no one is going to play this on the radio. In a, at Christmas time, it was the number one song of the year for 1975. What I always remember about when I when I hear this song is the scene uh, with this song from the movie Wayne's World. Right? I think it was a very creative use of this song, and I think it's one of the coolest pieces of music ever written. And the eccentricity and the 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 story level, the long duration. I mean, I guess people have no idea what's coming from Pink Floyd if they think this is too long. Uh, just typifies the time, and it, it's probably the most iconic song to come out of 1975 that's still around and still played all the time on the radio, where they said it would never be played. So with that, hope you enjoyed today's song of the day. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. Go little high, little low. Anyway, the wind blows, doesn't really matter to me. To me, Baba just killed a man, put a gun against.
scaramouche, scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, Galileo, Galileo Picaro. I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Mamma mia, mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me. 